Let's pray. Father God, as we approach your word, especially this glorious presentation of the life of Christ by Matthew, a, a sinner and a called man, we just thank you for the record he gave us, and we look to see what Jesus is going to do today in the temple. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. Well, last week in Matthew, we looked at what has become known as the triumphal entry of Christ, Jesus presenting himself to his people as the king, the long-awaited Messiah. And Matthew's been building up to this really from the very beginning, from this first sentence. Remember the opening uh, sentence in the gospel? The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he presented Jesus as the Messiah at the very beginning, that's the first sentence of the whole gospel. So he's not sneaking up on it. Uh, Matthew is announcing what God has done, sent the Messiah, the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah, into the world. And that is something that has profound meaning for every human being. And once Matthew announced that, he just starts to build this case for people that weren't there like he was, anybody reading this. He starts with the genealogy, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the two men who were given promises in the Old Testament that God would bring great blessing and an eternal kingdom through one of Abraham's and then one of David's descendants. And then he relates Jesus' miraculous birth, fulfilling the ancient prophecies, then the coming of the one to prepare the way, the living prophet, the first prophet in 400 years, John the Baptist, and the announcement from heaven at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then in chapter four of Matthew, Jesus is taken into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, and he passes the test, he's truly a righteous man. And then we have his words, Matthew 5 through 7, the great sermon on the mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, it's the king's manifesto, describing his kingdom, how you get into it, what a kingdom citizen is, what he lives like. And Jesus just stands the religion of Israel on its head, and he scrutinizes it and shakes it, shakes out all the phony piety and the hypocrisy and the foolishness and the superstition of it. And he sets God's holy standard where it's supposed to be so they can look at it and see themselves as sinners in need of grace. And he makes, the God, he makes God the center of their faith again. And when he's done with that sermon, Matthew says, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. One with authority. And then comes the miracles, the, the power over everything that plagues humanity, disease, affliction, demonic possession, even storms, the storm-tossed seas, even death. And maybe surprisingly then, after all of that, the gospel starts to reveal the opposition to Jesus, which is extreme. People want him dead. He's rejected. There's intense opposition amongst the religious leaders. There's immaturity on the parts of his disciples. And Matthew uh, takes a shift from chapter 11 on, all about this opposition coming. Even some regions ask Jesus to stay away. He started teaching more and more in parables where only the, the knowledgeable would even understand what he was really saying and most people just thought they were little stories and didn't get them at all. His main task then from chapter 16 on is to train his men in ministry and especially in godly humility where they were sorely lacking. 
Matthew is very thematic. He, he builds this narrative with these purposes in mind. He's the least concerned of all the gospel writers for chronology. And although the general order of events in this last week of Jesus' life, which we're just entering upon here in our text, um, it's pretty correct. He doesn't always bother to mention time issues, like when time has passed. There'll be a lot of examples of that as we kind of work through the next chapters here, but today here, the, the triumphal entry happened on Sunday. Some would say Monday. There's actually an argument for that. I won't get into all that stuff. Palm Monday, it just doesn't sound right. But um, is that actually possible because of the way Jews reckon days? But um, we'll stick with Sunday, uh, the traditional way. But in verse 12, he goes right into today's text, chasing the money changers out of the temple without mentioning that it happened on the next day. So if we're taking Sunday, then it, it happened on Monday. He doesn't mention that. It's just like he just runs right into it. And Matthew, um, in the next passage, he tells the cursing of the fig tree story as though it happened like right on the spot, but actually a day went by between when he spoke the language and they had this discussion about it, a day went by there. So he just doesn't concerned about that. He's thinking about themes and images and ideas that are accurate, just, he just doesn't pay attention to all the time things. He compresses things, I guess I should say it like that. But these incidents are told accurately and they tell us very important things. So Jesus came to Jerusalem, declared that he was the Messiah, and he's going to operate in the temple, his father's house, with impunity. I mean, like he owns the place, <laughs> which he does. It's his time, and he is in the temple. And all the big issues are crystallizing now that have been brought up. He's not a Galilean teacher and a wonder worker. He's certainly not satanic like the Pharisees tried to portray him as. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. So after the triumphal entry, Jesus retires to Bethany in the early evening, and the next morning he returns with just one thing in mind, clean house, clean house. And chapter 21, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. What's happening is Jesus is quite simply taking over the temple for a week. That's what he's doing. The agenda is his, that things are gonna be conducted his way. He's there to present God's word to the people as their Messiah. It is the day of visitation. Jesus starts things off very dramatically, just throwing out all the temple corruption. And for the moment, he's so popular, nobody's gonna stop him. And the people whose job it is to run the temple there, they just don't know what to do, so they just let him go. Because they're kind of afraid of a crowd reaction against them. Now last week we talked about the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, one of the last Old Testament prophecies describing the king coming to Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, coming in peace, presenting himself, and Jesus did that. He fulfilled that exactly. The very last prophecy of the Old Testament about the Messiah is in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, 
He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Can you hear that language there? I mean, it's the one you're seeking. The one they seek will come to his temple. It's his. And he will set it in order as he sees fit. And that's happening on this particular day. God cares about worship and how we worship and our hearts in worship. And that's, he cares about what's going on in assemblies where he, his name is lifted up and especially in this temple, but also in the church as well. We know that he hates worship that is merely external. That doesn't mean anything to him. Ritual with no faith. We know from the Bible that he cares for the poor and he cares for souls and he hates cheaters. So of course God despised the corruption of the temple system just as he despises the charlatans and the hucksters and that use Jesus today as a means of preying on poor people and getting all their money. I mean, if there was ever righteous anger in the world, it certainly should be directed at those who fleece the flock, the flock of God. And that's the kind of anger that's driving Jesus here. Verse 12 says he drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. So, What he did was just wonderful. And it's not a description of a guy that's berserk, just running around out of his head. He's angry, um, though it doesn't actually say he was angry, but in other places we know Jesus could show anger at times. But he has all the emotions that God has against evil, against wickedness. So God is angry about that, so certainly he's justified to be angry. So he goes to the heart, the very heart of the nation's religious system and he reorders temple operations according to his standards and he takes a very decisive action he says no more we're not doing this here anymore Mark in his gospel chapter 11 verse 16 gives us really interesting little detail he says he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple so that's extending beyond just this sort of act of suddenly throwing these guys out he made a rule And he enforced it. There wasn't going to be any trading going on of any kind in God's temple. And he enforced it. And nobody stopped him. So he was giving orders. So he really is in charge. It wasn't some random act he's doing here. He's setting rules for how it's going to be in the temple during the great Passover celebration. He's telling people then, once everything's in order, He's telling them what God is like and what God wants from his people and what pleases God. And he tells people what's coming in the future. So he starts teaching. He's gonna teach all week there now that everything's set in order. So let me back up and explain just why he would put the money changers out and demolish their little stalls here and why he's he's calling the temple a robber's den. Because that's very specific. He's not just saying you guys are using it for commerce or you're making a profit. He's saying this is a robber's den. implies criminal activity. And uh, selling does belong outside if it's necessary, but really the whole system was kind of corrupt. And basically, from what we understand, it's more like this. People are coming from all over the world for these festivals and to offer sacrifices, especially during the the required feasts. There's three required feasts where you're supposed to come. Um, The rule then was 25 miles. If you were within 25 miles of the temple, every man had to come during these feasts. But people came irregularly from much farther. People came from all over the Roman Empire that were Jewish to make a pilgrimage there and to be at the feast. Well, they brought their local coins. And local coins 
almost always had pagan gods on them or an image to Caesar who was worshipped as a god. So they wouldn't take those at the temple. So you had to go to a money changer and exchange that for a good Judean coin, which would have something like, you know, the, the, the candelabra and the temple on it or something like that. So um, the exchange rates is where the money was made. And that was a cheat. It was done to make money, not to facilitate worship. That became the motives. And the animals to be offered as sacrifices, you could bring your animal all the way from Nazareth or Cana or someplace way up north or down south and, and bring it to the temple. But people got to learn pretty quick that uh, they would, you know, the priest has to inspect the animal. It has to be clean, perfect, you know, without defect. Always manage to find some sort of defect, you know. Well, you can buy one right over here. And he mentions the overturning the, uh, the dove sellers. Those were birds that poor people, if you couldn't afford a lamb to offer, the law of Moses allowed for you to bring a very inexpensive sacrifice, which would be these birds. And, and uh, Jesus is turning over them because the same thing. They were charging more than they needed to for that and um, just taking people for a ride, you know. They made money off of it. It was a system designed to make money. Oh, that lamb didn't pass inspection. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But we do have lambs over there. Yes, they're a little high because this is a special flock we have right outside the gates of Jerusalem. But I'm sure you want to worship the Lord in the right way, don't you? Yeah, I want to worship the Lord in the right way. So he, he calls it a robber's den, and it, and it really was a racket, a, a religious racket. Those are common things. We see them in our time. Uh, all the time. So it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. I mean, what's a robber's den? Well, a den is where they hide, right? The temple is where robbers are hiding out. It's like, go to Vasquez Rocks, and Vasquez used, that was his den over there. He used to have those little places back in there where he used to hide out with his little band of criminals and keep his loot. But these thieves are hiding behind the cloak of a sacred religion, the, the holy, holiest place in the world, you know, God's true temple, just to make money. And all over the world, religious people, well, you know, Christians are pretty gullible and trusting, and if you can talk a good game, you can get them to hand over all their stuff and run away with it. Hucksters, hucksters love Christians. They come and hang out with Christians. We always have an eye out just in case. They come around here, but we don't like that. There's almost constant stories of people in ministry uh, who use the ministry to enrich themselves. I, I, I wish it was only prosperity preacher hucksters, but it's not. There's other people that do that as well. These are temptations that are common to men, all men, you know. Money, sex, and power. It's always been that way, but um, and that is not absent in church life or amongst church men. That's why accountability is so important. That's why the standards are so high. That's why I can't write a check at this church. <laughs> I'm not allowed to. I'm not allowed to touch the money, right? Which is good. That's the way we want it here. But um, no one is too important to question or challenge. No church, no Christian organization should be ruled by people at the top who control everything and there's no accountability. Nobody gets to see the books and things like that. Ruled by fear. There were more evangelical scandals in the news this week than I cared to even think about, but um, powerful men, powerful men being exposed. It's tiresome. I get really tired of it, and it's embarrassing to the Lord's work, but Jesus spoke 
to the users and the charlatans back in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 7, 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I will declare to them, I never knew you. That's what they'll hear on the last day. I didn't know you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He has the same righteous indignation today. He doesn't change. Using the name of God, the temple of God, or the church of God to take advantage of poor people to enrich yourself is a crime of, it's, it's so serious, you have to think that that person has no faith in their heart that they can do that to other people. And in Jesus, that raises in him this decisive action. Out they go. I never knew you. It'll, it was that way in the temple. It's going to be that way on judgment day. So Jesus will purify his church. Eventually, he'll purify the whole earth, right? He hasn't changed. He never winks at deceit or unrighteousness or impurity. He deals with it. You know, really, so much of this comes down to our conception of God, our understanding of who God is. Is, is he just a mediocre deity like many people imagine him to be in their mind? You know, sort of the unnamed higher power who helps us on math tests or helps us kick a habit or somebody to turn to when our kids are late from getting home, you know, and, oh, I'd better pray, you know. Is he just that kind of a God? Or is he the God of the Bible? Like Deuteronomy chapter 10 calls him the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. That's the real God. That's the God who's actually there. Jesus came in the service of the real God, the living God, the God of the Bible who says, you shall be holy for I am holy. Holy. Holy means, well, it means commandments are supposed to be obeyed. A, a holy God not only sees what we do, he, he weighs our motives the Bible says. A holy God cares about worship, whether it's from the heart or not, or if it's just ritual and routine for people. When Mark gives his account of Jesus casting out the money changers, we have another little, just a little extra note he makes there. In Mark eleven seventeen. he says, and he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. He adds that note that he was teaching and the tense of the verb there implies that it was a, a, a kind of an ongoing thing. So he did say those key words that Matthew has and Mark has and Luke has, but he also taught them about it. He, apparently it was a discussion. It was like he told them what was wrong about it. He actually taught there about why that was so wrong. So it's quite interesting that he uses that, a little bit surprising. It suggests that Jesus said more than the sentence that we have. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations all the nations. And he's quoting Isaiah 56, 7 when he says that. The temple isn't just for the Jews, remarkably enough, but for all peoples. People Isaiah describes as foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. And there were many in the Roman Empire. Many. In fact, the, the statistics from modern historians are, are pretty remarkable how many people identified with the God of Israel in the Roman Empire. The New Testament calls them God-fearers. Any time Paul went to preach somewhere, he preached to the Gentiles who had not become circumcised and become Jewish. They haven't done that, gone that far, but they come to the synagogue. They want to hear about the living God. They want to worship him. There were many people like that. 
and they would be at the temple too. And in the temple, there was a place called the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles could not go past a certain point uh, if they were, unless they were circumcised properly and truly converted. But they were allowed in the temple to worship the true God. And rabbis would come out there in that courtyard and teach them about God. And it was a wonderful place. But that was also, guess what? The marketplace. That's where all that was done. It should have been the court of evangelism, really. You know, teaching these Gentiles about the true God. And it was the marketplace. And that's why Jesus is so upset about it. Selling when they should have been doing the work of God there. They weren't praying for people. They were praying on people, you know. So what kind of a heart does that? I mean, what kind of a heart does a priest have who allows that? Do you just slip into that or is that some kind of strategic plan to bilk people? Can people that are religious have wicked hearts? Yeah, they, they can. Mark eleven eighteen says, when the chief priests and the scribes heard this, they repented and examining their hearts and beating their breasts, they called out for the, no, they didn't. They, that, that's not what it says. This is what it says. When the chief priests and the scribes heard this, they began seeking how to destroy him. We've got to kill this guy. He's hitting the bottom line. They already hated him. The Pharisees hate Jesus through most of the Gospels, but now he's in the temple, and now we're talking about different people. The chief priests and the scribes that were in the temple, they hated the Pharisees. They had an ongoing thing about each other because the the Pharisees thought they were compromisers, and they thought the Pharisees were bumpkin, uh, lightweight uh, religious types. And, uh, you know, the chief priests were kind of secular, really, kind of like they are now in some churches. They didn't think biblically at all. But uh, they sought to destroy him. How useless religion can be sometimes, right? Men make it a tool for their own internal desires and evil. And something a lot more is needed than temples and vestments and priests and sacrifices. Isaiah, Isaiah lived in very corrupt times, very much like that, dark times. And the book of, his, the book of Isaiah, the great prophet, starts like this. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. And they came to the temple all the time and offered their sacrifices and prayed their prayers. But sin ruled the day. And they were religious people. They went to services, they sang the psalms, they brought their sacrifices, they gave money, they prayed public prayers. And what did God think of all that religion? Well, just a little farther down in Isaiah chapter one, it says, uh, verse 11, it says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires you, of you, this trampling of my courts. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the call of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate 
your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, they have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. This is God speaking. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Then he gives them some counsel. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's a great way to start off a 66 chapter book. (laughs) That's the first chapter. And that was 700 years before Jesus. The same problem. Human hearts have to be changed from the inside out, just like we sang today. And that can only come from a work of God's grace. Only by his gracious work will we trade in the blind, weak, mediocre God that we worship in our vain imaginations and begin to deal with the God who's really there. And he will make our sins as white as snow in Christ if we come to him as he really is. He opens our hearts to him. We come to see the beauty and the excellence of holiness, his holiness. And we begin to see that love is much better than mushy feelings. It's actually a giving thing, a self-sacrificing thing. It's always looking out for the good of other people. And God's two great attributes, there's many things true of God, but his great attributes are love and holiness. Those are the two things that distinguish him so uniquely. And those two things demand that we apply ourselves to follow his goodness. And Jesus is saying, make the, the court of the Gentiles a place of welcome and teaching for those Gentiles. Do right, love until the Lord can say he's pleased with you. That's what he's trying to teach them. Worship God as he is. Worship him as, as he has revealed himself to be. And do his good work. So for one week, probably in centuries, the temple operated the way it was supposed to be. The way it was supposed to be. The word of God was being taught faithfully in the court of the Gentiles by the Son of God. Can you imagine? Every day Jesus is, is there teaching and ministering to people in need, healing people. Teaching and healing were the the new constant and dominant activities in the court of the Gentiles. Matthew 21, 14 describes the day there. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And you know what? The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes would have to live through a whole week of undiluted goodness And they hated it. Verse 15, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. It's so wonderful, children praising Jesus as the Messiah. You know, in in societies where there aren't TVs and all these electric devices to occupy a child's constant attention, 
kids would just imitate what they saw other people do. That's how they played, you know. If they saw the Roman soldiers, they would march like the soldiers. If they saw a funeral, they would imitate the people grieving in the funeral and playing the sad tunes and stuff like that. And, and on this day, what are they imitating? They're remembering the day before when everyone was shouting Hosanna to the son of David and there's the little kids and they see Jesus in the temple and they're saying Hosanna to the son of David. They're repeating the same thing. They're all excited. They saw blind people healed and lame people walking and they shout that out. And all that goodness and happiness just pushed the buttons of the temple officials and their scribes. In verse 16 they say, do you hear what these children are saying? They're saying that to Jesus. They're calling you Messiah. Are you going to allow that? And we know from the other gospels, the Pharisees said something like that on Sunday. And now the chief priests and the scribes are saying that on Monday. How can you allow this? Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus' answer is just perfect. He says, yes. Have you never read, quoting again the Old Testament, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself? He's saying, I hear them, and they're right. They're right. Man, how they hated Jesus. Every day, the greatest man who ever lived, the greatest teacher who ever lived, the man who would make God real to thousands right in front of them, their lives changing, grace abounding like it never had before, compassion flowing with power from the Messiah because it's his time. And they hate him for it. Now that's why he cleansed the temple. He sanctified it for his use. The Father's house had to be set in order. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, he says, judgment begins with the household of God. That's true then, it's true now. God will have a pure people. That's why these creeps get exposed ultimately in the media, these big people, powerful names, big names because God will cleanse his house. And we each have a responsibility to keep his house pure. And if we don't, the light fades, doesn't it? We have a duty to to measure ourselves by the word of God and cling to it and plead for grace to live it. And when I say measure ourselves, I mean measure ourselves individually and measure ourselves as a corporate body and say, are we doing things his way? Are we honoring him in all that we do? That might include lovingly confronting each other about sin. And we need to correct each other. And we need to be open to correction, right? We should be thankful when people point out our errors. That's our duty. Thank you. You're right. If a church doesn't do this, the the light fades. And we dishonor God and we lose the privilege of being a light to the world. You know, in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 5 Jesus says, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent, he says. And lampstands represented churches and he's talking to these seven churches in Asia and saying, you need to change. So our our focus has to be sharp, our goal has to be clear, our praise has to be genuine, our obedience has to be out of love for God. Our desire has to be to serve other people and serve the Lord. The responsibility to be pure and useful personally and again as a corporate body is essential. We must be clean vessels as individuals and as a church family. 
He needs a clean temple. That's what he wants. He needs people in a community with the right priorities and the right desires and the right motives. And he cleanses us. He's going to do that. And sometimes it hurts. Sometimes he uses a scouring pad. <laughs> At least he does it on me sometimes. But, but any loss in the scouring process is acceptable if it makes us useful to him, right? And to make his church useful. Do you not know, Paul told the Corinthians, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Do you know that? I thought it was my own. (laughs) No, not if you're a Christian. A Christian is owned by God, and when the king enters his temple, whether it's that big building in Jerusalem or it's the temple of our body, it's his temple. It's his temple. And it's his to do with what he wants. And that is as it should be, whether it is a great structure or it's our bodies. So are you going to let Jesus cleanse you? That's what he wants to do. Will you cooperate as he arranges this internal temple, this heart? It's much better to let him do his thing because, you know, he might rearrange the furniture. He might kick out the greed and the impurity and the self-focus. Well, just let him do it. Work with him on that. Cooperate. If he says you can't do that anymore, then stop. If he says start thinking about this, then start thinking about it. If he says we're going to do this now or I need you over here, then do it. Go. We are purchased We are blood-bought. We are not our own. Let's pray. Our great Lord of all, we are mere vessels for you to use. So mold us, make us useful, do what you will. Drive out all that displeases you and fill our hearts with good things that we may follow your perfect will. This we ask in the name of our great Messiah, Savior, Healer, Teacher, Jesus Christ, Amen.